And welcome back to the Zero Hour by Safeguard Cyber. Um, apologies for the slight delay in getting this one live. We were heads down in a research project. But today's episode is an exciting one, as always. Um, this week, we have Peter Horst. Hey, George, it's great to be back on the podcast with you. Ashley Stone here. We spoke with Peter Horst a couple weeks ago now, and he was fantastic. He has experience across all verticals. Yes, this is the former CMO of uh, Capital One, Ameritrade, Hershey, some of the biggest brands. So uh, multiple verticals, a lot of experience. And this is a fun conversation. We have focused largely on cybersecurity, but this time around we talk about his new book, which is Marketing in the Era of Fake News, which touches on some of the misinformation research that we have done. Um, and we talk about how these new digital technologies are driving a convergence in communication, but that this convergence also extends to business operations and responsibilities. So what do you do now in an era where uh, conduct outside of the office can suddenly impact brand reputation, stock value, etc.? Anyway, we should not summarize here. Let's leave it to Peter to do the talking. Peter Horst. Hello, Peter Horst. Welcome to our podcast. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. We're excited to have you, Peter. For our listeners, can you tell us about your professional journey? Well, my uh, my professional journey has been a bit of a magical mystery tour, I'll admit. And, uh, you know, it started with coming out of college with a liberal arts degree, which was, you know, great education, but not exactly career preparatory. So I you know, did an odd collection of things after school, trying to discover what it is I wanted to do in the world. I worked at a talent agency, a law firm, and then magazine publishing, then said, all right, time to get serious, go to business school and uh, figure out you know, what I want to do and get some skills and credibility. And it was at business school that I discovered marketing, uh, you know, the whole brain activity that I'd been seeking without really having those terms to describe it. So, you know, marketing means you have to roll around the numbers and be analytical and strategic and then pivot and be creative and take leaps of faith and be able to understand the nuances of language and, you know, concepts. <clears throat> so um, day one of business school, I decided, wow, this is it. And my first job after business school was at General Mills doing the classic brand management Thing. Uh, so great grounding and brand disciplines and product development and marketing management and all that good stuff. And from there embarked on kind of a, a you know, very varied collection of experiences, which really reflected just my kind of continual interest in discovering new things and flexing new muscles and you know, experiencing new challenges. So after CPG and food, I jumped into telecom. Um, just at the dawn of the internet and uh, got involved in, you know, the triple play of cable data telephony services and what do you do with this there internet thing and, you know, downloadable music on demand, online travel, internet yellow pages. Uh, from there, another kind of shift to online brokerage. I was Ameritrade's first CMO just as they launched that brand. Um, so spent you know, a few years there during the wild ride of the early days of online trading. And from there, another kind of left turn uh, joined a small B2B 
company in the uh, cybersecurity space. And so I had to cut my teeth on technology product management and how do you generate leads and brand with a, you know, minimal marketing budget. Um, from there, I went on to Capital One, uh, where I spent 12 years, really in a variety of roles, but all focused on, you know, building the brand and the, the supporting products in this increasingly diversified financial. Started out as a subprime credit card company and then eventually grew to be a top 10 bank. So uh, lots of fun work and and really you know expanding and and growing that brand, developing innovative uh, value propositions as we moved into new categories, um, and then you know after 12 years of of doing that, um, I started to feel the the itch for new pastures and new challenges, <clears throat> and uh, jumped back into where I began in CPG and became uh, Hershey's global CMO. Uh, so from checking accounts to chocolate bars, um, so a lot of fun there, you know, repositioning and refreshing some of these beloved iconic brands, um, re-energizing the innovation portfolio, uh, bringing a, a more modern marketing model um, to to these great brands. So um, you know, fun experience there. Um, and then the last couple of years, I've spent. And kind of what I would call career 2.0, you know, being a consultant, author, speaker, sitting on a handful of boards, um, which has really been fun because I've always enjoyed writing, always enjoyed sort of content and thought leadership um, uh, uh, and wrote a book, which was something I'd always sort of wanted to do and, and uh, looked forward to doing. So uh, it's been yet a whole other sort of uh, new arena for me to play in. So uh so that's the uh, that, that's the strange tour of my life. I used to feel very sheepish about what felt like kind of this random schizophrenic collection of things until a recruiter some years ago said, oh, you have the mosaic experience. That's great. That, oh, I like mosaic much better than random. That, that's good branding right there. <laughs> that's right. So uh, so anyway, that's a quick race through my background. Yeah. And I would I would like to to touch on this idea of jumping multiple verticals from CPG, et cetera, to Fiserv to telecom. Um, I, it feels like today people tend to be more specialized. Like um, I uh, really excel in retail or I'm the B2B marketing person or I'm a services versus an actual product person. Um, can you speak a little bit about the, the different challenges in, in jumping across such varied verticals? Um, whether the, the, uh, the career challenges of learning new things or also just the sheer marketing challenges of either differing models or trying to reach different audiences? Yeah, it, it's a great question. And, and, you know, certainly in my travels, I have known plenty of people who were like myself and they have sort of been in a lot of different environments. And then plenty of people who just go deep and, you know, they are a career financial services marketing or they are enterprise software marketing. Um, and there's certainly something to be said for both, right? And uh, you're certainly right that there are certainly companies and places and, and CEOs who really value that, you know, I want you to be an inch wide and a mile deep. So you are the absolute living expert, you know, everything there is to know about, you know, this arena and the nuances and the buyer behaviors and the competitors. Um, and that's a perfectly great career path. Um, for myself, as I you know touched on, I've always 
sort of enjoyed and thrived on the challenge of learning new things. Um, but it's not just about, I think there, there's a value beyond just, oh, it's fun to jump into new stuff. But th there are also companies and CEOs that value the perspective that comes from having been in different places and seen different environments. And sometimes, you know, you'll, you'll hear of um, a CEO looking for a new uh, CMO and saying, I expressly don't want someone who comes from, you know, my industry. I want someone who brings fresh perspective and will ask questions and, you know, look at sacred cows, not overly reverentially. Um, so, you know, it, it's really, it's kind of situational. It can be kind of personal. Um, there might be a, a company that absolutely, because of where it's at, it's in crisis mode and needs to make lots of fast, high stakes decisions. It might be you don't want someone who's coming in from another industry who will, you know, have to spend some time getting up to speed and may need to lean on other people more. And you want someone who's just going to be able to rely on, you know, muscle memory and decades of, of painfully learned knowledge. Um, so, you know, I think there's there's certainly value in both. And you just need to understand at the end of the day, what's going to be the path that is most satisfying to you as an executive. Cool. Um, and so what is your consulting look like now? Is that trying to build processes or advise on uh, discrete uh, campaigns? What is what shape does that take? Yeah, it's funny. It, it It's very varied. And that reflects the fact that I pretty much violated my cardinal rule number one uh, when I embarked on this, you know, career 2.0 in that I did not set out with a tight brief. <laughs> you know, I didn't say, okay, this is the kind of thing I want to do. This is the kind of company I want to work with. These are the services that I'm going to offer. I sort of went into this new uh, phase of my career, very much open-minded, not sure where it would go and what form it would take. So as a result, um, the kind of consulting I've done has been incredibly varied by company and by activity. So everything from a you know, 150-year-old bank to a brand new uh, uh, consumer product startup to technology company. And the kind of things that I do um, vary from sort of just being an ongoing advisor on retainer to be available, you know, more or less for a certain amount of time per month to provide counsel, to look at you know, work that's underway to ask annoying questions, to be a sounding board. Um, sometimes it's a very particular focused, hey, can you come in and help us kind of freshen our positioning and, you know, realign our messaging. And, you know, an example was uh, working with a, a tech company, um, actually in the security space, that had a wonderful product with incredible capabilities and absolutely leading edge um, uh, technology, uh, but they were struggling with how do we develop a powerful kind of positioning elevator pitch. And as so often is the case, the problem is when people um, have a terrific solution that has lots of great things and they're very close to it and very aware of all the great things it can do, it can become very hard to say, okay, amongst all the things we could say, um, how are we going to, you know, choose what is the first among equals and what is the, how do we boil it down into something sharp and armor piercing? Right. Which um, child do you love the most? 
That's <laughs> yeah. Or, or how do you combine the children to make one super child? Super or, child. You know, how do you twist twist the lens? You know, so that it suddenly comes into, um, you know, what what's the order of things? Uh, and sometimes that's where being a little bit outside of the fray helps. And you know, in the space of an hour, I said, well, gosh, from what you're saying, it sounds like it's you know, first A supported by B and C. It's like, oh my gosh, wow, did you write that down? Um, so, you know, that was sort of a one-time event, come in and help someone shape up, you know, a messaging thing. Oh, sounds great. Um, so it really run, runs runs the gamut of the kinds of things I've been able to jump into. And that's that's part of the fun of it. Yeah, and it sounds like it's exciting to learn how to message and teach people how to message with all these different challenges. So I'm actually going to jump us down to the last question. So with respect to marketing challenges in this fake news era, what scares you the most? What keeps you up at night? Well, you know, gosh, a lot of things. Um, so so much to be worried about these days, isn't there? Um, <laughs> yes. You know, I think from a brand and marketing perspective, um, it's become so hard to know what to believe, hard to know what's true. Um, and there are so many things being said by so many um, often unreliable or downright malevolent sources that, you know, it, it's become a very risky environment for all institutions, including brands. Um, so someone with an ax to grind um, can s- <laughs> reach an audience that's quite substantial and uh, you know, brands find themselves facing all manner of controversy and challenge and, and crisis, sometime of their own making, sometimes out of misunderstanding, sometimes out of, you know, someone with an agenda. Um, and how are people supposed to know what's true? And, um, it's become harder and harder for brands to develop trusted, authentic relationships in an environment like this. So, you know, I, I worry about just how, again, purely from a marketing perspective, um, you know, the challenges that that marketers and brand stewards will face. Um, you know, I also worry that as technology grows more powerful and analytics and algorithms and AI increasingly coming into the mix, you know, as I touched on earlier, great marketing, I believe, is about that balance of art and science, right? And um, the most powerful, iconic brands and the greatest, most compelling campaigns don't spring straight from a spreadsheet. Uh, and I worry that there's sort of this gravitational pull of the technology that can sort of encourage and enable us to abdicate more and more of that process and make it less likely that we're going to value and nurture and support that creative human insight driven judgment driven spark that's at the heart of all great brands um, in favor of the relatively more easy short-term rewarding um, algorithm driven, how do I get that next best sale? Yeah, I, I agree. And, we, um, Ashley and I both came from a digital marketing agency and I could begin to feel that poll to the point where it sort of became moot to try and pitch ideas. I mean, sure we were grounding the ideas in data, but when it finally came down to 
well, what does this look like? What's the vision? You know, there was an insistence upon like, what is the data that supports that? And, and eventually you, you get to this impasse where you're like, the data is directional, but given what we know, given what we've seen people respond to, this is the idea that we think is going to kick. And, uh, I, I don't, I can't justify that entirely with data because otherwise I'd be able to see the future, which I can't, right. <laughs> you know, so. Not yet. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, that, that's right. And then similarly is, um, you know, one of the biggest issues facing marketers these days is, um, marketing accountability. How do you know what's working? How do you know what to invest in and what to, to pair back on? And, you know, the, the state of the art of the analytics at this point are much more tuned towards optimizing that next sale as opposed to being able to really quantify the value of long-term brand and investments in it that really don't pay out in the next week, the next quarter, maybe not even in this year, but that fuel, you know, ongoing years of, of healthy uh, healthy business. Yeah. Sort of like so, a indirect halo or something, you know, it's like the reason yeah, why exactly. Nike still pays, you know, big prices for athletes and that premier level filmmaking that we've gotten used to seeing. No, that's not going to generate a sale, but it has to be running in the background. Otherwise Nike is not Nike anymore. Right. Yeah. It won't, it won't generate tomorrow's sale, but it'll generate a sale, you know, down the road. Right. Um, and it'll lift, you know, all the boats of those performance-oriented vehicles that are, that are being invested in. And it's really hard to, to demonstrate the math that says, ah, we're getting X percent return from this brand investment. Um, but it's pretty easy to show, you know, what that display ad did right. or what that Facebook, you know, video <laughs> did. So, um, so yes, yeah, so that's it's going to take intestinal fortitude and vision and strength uh, of the CMOs and a certain degree of enlightenment and trust from CEOs and their boards. Um, and you know, the reality is something like 3% of boards have marketing representation on them. Um, so most boards don't get marketing, don't understand how huge a portion of enterprise enterprise brand value that, uh, the brand represents. Um, so, uh, it's, you know, it's a little bit of an uphill battle right now on the whole to uh, to get the kind of support that most brands deserve. Yeah, your brand is everything. So so let's switch gears and get a little bit more positive. What what gives you the most hope? Well, I think you see a lot of things going in the right direction on some of these issues that we've talked about. So there was a time when marketing and heads of marketing were viewed as the advertising people and the pretty pictures people and the brochure people. And I do think you're seeing more and more companies understand that, yeah, marketing isn't a cost to be optimized and reduced. It's mission critical rocket fuel that drives the organization um, and its health and growth. And, as the world as, as business gets more complex and you know you see more and more ways in which the traditional org chart just isn't helpful and issues like customer experience become so critical right well customer experience doesn't fit neatly in a functional org chart it touches 
product design and communications and PR and customer service and operations and may, touches everything. Right. So, um, and that's just one issue, digital transformation, another issue that touches everybody. Yeah. We, I have and another I uh, friend who's a CMO who, who was talking at, at lunch with me the other day and she was saying, you know, now everything is getting lumped into her position that you're talking about an automation tech stack. You're talking about digital channels and the big idea of marketing. So she feels like both traditional CMO and now kind of quasi chief digital officer, uh, which is way different from where she started. Yes, exactly. And I think there, there's an acknowledgement that there are a number of issues where, um, you know, no one executive can or should own it and uh, from a functional straight line perspective, but it needs kind of spiritual leadership and it needs a ringleader and a coordinator and a driver. And for many of those kind of big fundamental cross enterprise issues, the marketing person is increasingly playing that role. So I think the stature, the respect for the role of marketing is is really only growing. Um, you know, there's some counter trends. I think for a while there was the chief digital officer notion that in some ways showed some signs of kind of swamping the notion of marketing as we usually think about it. Um, I, I, I have a sense that that kind of trend is disappearing a little bit. Um, because frankly, all these things are just converging. Um, but I think on the whole, you know, there's greater appreciation for what marketing can do, what role those people should play. And, uh, it's much more kind of into the the central mission of the organization. Okay, great. All right. Well, let's, uh, turn our attention to the book, which I will shamelessly plug here and say is a, is a great read. Um, not, filled uh with the usual jargon heavy um fluff that (laughs) accompanies a lot of marketing (laughs) books i found it very practical um and very useful and very um contemporary in terms of the case studies and the situations uh, examined so so for our listeners you've written a book about uh the challenge that marketers face in a fake news era um, and it's a smart analysis. And I think the consensus uh, between Ashley and I when we were reading it is that it's it's time to adapt. That's sort of the theme. Um, and as you put it, uh, quote, personal, corporate and brand issues have begun to blur into one another, end quote. Um, could you elaborate a little bit on what you mean there by this blurring of uh, roles? Sure. And it, it really gets to this notion of... Um, you know, there, there was a time where there were kind of distinctions between um, a, a particular product brand and what it does or doesn't do and how it performs and so forth, and the reputation of the company it sits within, and separate yet again from you know the individuals that that run that organization. So you know, it might be that the CFO of Company X is you know gotten into some trouble because of his taxes or something or other uh but didn't really you know affect much about the product and whether or not it would you know face challenges at the you know the store shelf or the overall reputation of the company but these days with you know the sort of ubiquity of social media the instant accessibility of 
information. Um, and this climate of sort of loss of trust and skepticism and sense of kind of, let's call it fear, um, those things have really started to blend to the point where, you know, if the CEO is caught on video screaming at a taxi driver, um, that has an effect on the perceptions of the company. And when the CEO of, you know, uh, KB Homes is recorded screaming, you know, in foul language at his neighbor about a dispute about, you know, noisy kids, uh, that goes viral. And news commentators say, wow, do you want to buy a home from this guy? Where, you know, what in, in logical terms, the benefits of that particular house really don't have much to do with how that CEO behaves in his backyard on a Sunday afternoon, but those things all become conflated. Um, so that, you know, as goes, uh, the executive or the reputation of the company as an institution, um, that all sort of has an effect on the brand as we think about it in a traditional marketing sense and how consumers then may feel about it. Uh, and how they may vote with their with their wallets. So yeah, I think that challenge um, is yeah, it's sort of twofold. It's not just the fragmentation um, and the portability of these channels, right? So for example, the CEO gets angry at somebody and starts screaming on the lawn, and and he is uh, in that moment unaware of people whipping out their phones. But it's also the fact that the technology then accelerates it very quickly. Yes, Not only is it easier absolutely. to get out there, it's easy to, to put jet fuel behind it and, and get it That's out exactly there. Exactly right. And, and somebody with an ax to grind can then amplify it, you know, um, purposefully. Um, so that, you know, even beyond its own sort of intrinsically viral nature, um, people who have an agenda to further a cause or an issue or, you know, who already have, you know, um, an agenda with that company or that person can then make hay out of that and becomes fodder. Um, you know, and you see both consumers as well as other interest groups get very savvy about how to do that. And, you know, for example, when Sean Hannity was, uh, saying things that people found objectionable about the Parkland oh, kids, right. mm -hmm. um, you saw, you know, people rise up and say, hey, you know, advertiser, Keurig, for example, what are you doing advertising on Hannity when he's saying these horrible things? Um, you know, we'll boycott you if you don't get off his program. So they get off the program. Then the Hannity fans rise up and start yes, smashing right. and blowing up their Keurig machines. Um, so, you know, so there's sort of a, a series of, of accelerating, amplifying you know, events that, that can happen that just put brands in the crosshairs of these issues. Yeah. And I think, um, this speaks to the next point, which is, um, as we see this convergence of, uh, reputation brand, even enterprise value, um, we also see that, uh, by extension, the employees are essentially the first line of defense or they're kind of the, infantry. I, I like to um, the create the analogy of, you know, those the average community manager for a big uh, corporation, social media, which is typically sort of the most junior employee in the marketing department. 
they're sort of like the unwitting Roman legions <laughs> at the at the Hadrian's Wall, like the outside of the Roman Empire. They have no idea that they're essentially like the front line of defense. Yeah. Um, and so we've seen, um, you know, where either the controls of those accounts can get compromised. Uh, you know, I think last year we had the Buffalo Wild Wings Twitter hack where somebody got a hold of it and then just unleashed some racist invective for a few hours before it got taken down. But then we also see more direct impacts like um i th- also believe it was last year but we saw that director from suntrust use his corporate linkedin account to send really inappropriate photos to a recruit i'm not sure how he confused linkedin and <laughs> tinder for example but right. you know, that that is a you know how do you strike the balance between trusting and empowering your employees to use these powerful new channels and and also the maintaining the vigilance without kind of being a, a big brother uh, figure. Yeah. Well, you know, as always, I think it's, there's sort of the, the three layers of people and culture, there's process and there's technology. And from the, you know, culture side, um, you, you know, so let's start with the premise that you want to be as real time and decentralized as you can be. Uh, because these things come and go and opportunities to capitalize, you know, happen and then disappear or issues that, you know, can be addressed quickly and fires could be stamped out. You know, you don't have 24 hours to do that. So you want to be every bit as local and real time and decentralized and empowered as you can safely be. So the question is, how do you, you know, do the safely part? Um, so, you know, one is sort of culture and values and clarity on this is who we are. This is the kind of things we say, the kind of things we don't say. Um, this is our voice. Uh, um, and, you know, th- th- that should provide, whether you're a community manager or a cafe manager, um, you know, that tells you you don't, you know, snap back at someone online. You don't throw two gentlemen out of a Philadelphia cafe for sitting there waiting for their friends. Um you know, that's sort of first line of defense of just values and culture. Then there's kind of process around, you know, how do you know when it's time to escalate? How do you know when it's time to bring in the legal department? Um, uh, so just what are the rules of engagement and total clarity on here are your degrees of freedom, here are your guardrails, and here's what you do if. And then, you know, the technology side, uh, you're, you're closer to that probably than I am, but, you know, there are certainly... Uh, myriad ways in which you can make sure, or at least not, you know, reduce the risk of compromise and infiltration and takeovers. Um, but that's, you know, that's got to be absolutely a part of how you maintain a, a safe brand. Because we've certainly seen many instances of brands that suffered, you know, near catastrophic damage simply because of cyber breaches. Yeah, and I, yeah, the SunTrust thing is particularly close to home because one, I I do my banking there, but also because it's um, I I know that we could have stopped it. <laughs> it was like if only we could have gotten right, uh, right. there. But um, yeah, that's that's an interesting uh, layered thought process. I hadn't heard of of that before, and of course, culture being the hardest because you can't buy that from a third party vendor. <laughs> right. Right. Um, Okay, so uh, I think you, you touched on this in terms of um, uh, the you know the catastrophes that can happen as a result of a breach. So, um, 
you come from a background that includes big CPG and big um, retail brands. So when you have conglomerates now like Procter and Gamble or um, oh, at Hennessy, Louis Vuitton, you, they have dozens of sub brands that all have their own unique identities. Um, and with all those identities comes dozens of uh, digital channels, whether it's internal collaboration tools or just think of, you know, every sub brand having a Facebook page, a Twitter account, probably a Twitter account for customer service, an Instagram um, account, Pinterest, etc. It just becomes exponential. So do you have any advice on how those um, big brands can either centralize control or, or gain greater visibility uh, into that? Because again, you know, it's a, it's not a house of cards, but you know, you go after one brand, it can then impact like the, the reputation of the holding company um, as an, as an entire entity. Right. <clears throat> no, it's a great question. And, you know, it seems there's this natural law of human behavior that, you know, we have this great, uh, drive to complexify and diversify and expand and spread. And it's just true of every, every arena. So, you know, over time, a company will gradually hire more and more and more and more advertising agencies. And yeah, we see this in, you know, in the press and, you know, P&G will say, oh my God, we've got 3,000 agencies around. We're, we're going to whack that down to 25 agencies. And then five years later, you'll, you know, you'll hear the same thing again. So just, and that's no, not because anyone has bad intent, just because people sit there and say, well, I have this totally unique brand and it's really special and it needs to have its own, you know, experiential agency or sampling agency or, um, you know, I can't possibly be supported in the company Facebook page. I need to have my own because we have our own little vibe and nuance that must be cherished and so forth. So, you know, it's like so many other things. It's, it's about balance, you know, local versus global and uh, um, central versus diversified. And so, you know, here again, you, you'll need to have some way of first governing just the proliferation of these things. You know, do you really need, you know, this many Twitter accounts? Maybe yes, maybe no. Um, uh, and then the question becomes, um, if you say, yes, we do need, you know, 10 of these things, whatever they are, then the question is, well, how do you manage them? And again, there will be this natural uh, uh, sort of drive at the brand management level to say, well, I've got to manage it myself because only I know my brand, you know, um, the way nobody else does. And, you know, for most organizations, it's just not going to make sense to have uh, that much sort of uh uh, localization and and um, balkanization of those kinds of properties, you know, for many reasons. One is skill set, right? Not every brand manager can be an expert in how to, you know, the best practices of how you maintain a great Facebook page and you know do Twitter posts or Instagram or Pinterest or whatever it is. Um, so you're likely going to need some center of excellence who can be really good and efficient and high quality at that. Um, and you know, you're likely going to want 
to have some degree of stewardship and quality control and oversight to make sure people don't go off the rails. And, you know, the, the more, the greater number of people doing things, the more likely it is that someone is going to go off the reservation. So, you know, these are all complicated decisions and it's like the whole, you know, geographic local region versus central headquarters sort of debate. Um, So I I won't claim to, to have a perfect percentage or answer to this, but I think it's about, you know, finding that Goldilocks balance of you want to have the right degree of sort of brand integrity and uniqueness, but, you know, where there is um, horizontal leverage, where there is best practice and, um, you know, center of excellence leverage, uh, you really want to take advantage of that, and particularly in a world where, you know, there are, there are risks in terms of, you know, uh, cyber and takeovers and that sort of thing. Just the the more instances you have of something, the more you know vulnerabilities there are. So I think, um, you know, be be rigorously centralized and stewarded where you can, and at those places where you, there's really great leverage and being local or decentralized, you know, do that thoughtfully. Yeah, and I think so. Yeah, you said a couple of things there that really caught my attention. One was the the center of excellence, and one was uh, touching on the risks to those assets. And I think when we're talking, so we often talk to um, either uh, security teams or brand marketing teams, sometimes both, but usually we have contact with one, and then we end up talking to the other um, because that's just the nature of digital is that there's a convergence between what was traditionally considered cyber IT security and and now brand marketing. But I think when the light bulb goes off is when people realize that these accounts aren't just um, a thing, but they are in fact uh, what we call digital assets that have a a tangible enterprise value, right? So if you're like a fashion brand and you're using Instagram, you know, the engagement that you see there has a noticeable impact, whether it's on uh, awareness, branding, you know, now ads for uh, direct response. But should that get taken over or be compromised, that is, you know, information is your currency now. And so it's it's sort of like trying to imagine somebody taking over one of your offices. You know, that's, that's essentially what that represents. Yeah, and... I think many organizations fail to appreciate how valuable that brand is. And, um, you know, I've been doing some work with the Forbes marketing accountability project and, you know, they're partnered up with a group called the marketing accountability standards board. And they've done some research that showed that on average brand value represents 19% of total enterprise value, right? So $1 out of every five of the stock price is about the brand. And I would bet that most boards don't realize that um, because if they did, they would spend more time asking questions about, you know, what are we doing to protect and support the health of this brand? Now, when it comes to a consumer facing category and especially something like fashion or perfume or, or you know, liquor, um, it's probably more like 50% or more of the value of the company is bound up in that brand. And so you're absolutely right that anything that affects the health of that brand is absolutely going straight to the heart of the value of the company. And there's 
you know, after CEO succession, there's probably nothing more critical that a board should be thinking about. Yeah, um, we've seen a we've had clients that have ha- have been involved in deals where they're either going public or they're going uh, private through uh, private equity firms, and they've had one or two of their channels compromised, like their LinkedIn account takeover or their Twitter account takeover. And it doesn't jeopardize the deal. It's not like the deal is off. But we have ha- we've seen instances in which the deal is literally put on hold. Like we will not proceed until you can demonstrate that you have uh, this under control, that you have some sort of guardrails or you have ring fenced your accounts in a way that this won't happen again. And we're talking about yeah. you know hundreds of millions of dollars at stake. Over, I think if you were to tell stop somebody on the street and say you know, well, this deal's being hung up because somebody took over their LinkedIn account. It seems baffling, like, okay, whatever, just yeah. delete it and start a new account. But that's that's the reality. This is like millions of dollars at stake over that. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. The, uh, the, the You know, it can take years for a company to recover from these things. And, you know, it, it, conceivably some could be fatal. Um, so, yeah, it's a uh, few things more important than making sure you know, if you haven't left any holes unplugged in, in terms of the integrity and the health of the, the brand and corporate reputation. Um, well, uh, I've really enjoyed this discussion. Thank you for joining us. We appreciate the time. Thank you. It's been uh, great chatting with you. So Peter Horst, that guy knows his stuff. Yes, it was really interesting to think about how there is a true cost to damage to your brand. Yes, and I think we often talk about financial costs to actual data breaches, but there is this auxiliary or ancillary cost that comes with brand damage. Um, And speaking of breaches, some of the news stories we are following this week, um, principally the data breach of student PII at Georgia Tech, which was announced yesterday. Um, I think there are a lot of questions that will be asked about how PII was being handled or passed internally, but um, this also appears to be the result of an external attack on the university. Sure, George, it might be embarrassing that you have a cybersecurity research center that gets hacked, But this really highlights the problem of, one, that universities are just constantly under attack, but two, they're under attack for their research. That's valuable IP that bad actors are looking to to take and bring back to their country. And substantially easier to attack a university than, say, a military contractor or uh, military infrastructure itself. So, yes, the lesson is that hackers will always go after the uh, lowest hanging fruit. Something else we are watching out for is um, the resurgence of APT32, which is a Vietnamese group also known as Ocean Lotus. Um, They have a new, rather sophisticated malware making the rounds. It is... I'm going to try to say this correctly, steganographic, which means the malware is hidden inside the metadata and code of a PNG image file. So probably quick to be shared um, as just a benign image, but then it it decrypts its own um, payload and then begins to extract data. Um, And then, of course, wouldn't be another week without Facebook in the headlines. (laughs) 
Um, to be fair, I think the headlines um, are obscuring one of the issues here. The, the headline is that Facebook data was discovered on an unsecured AWS bucket, um, including usernames uh, and possibly passwords. However, it wasn't Facebook storing that data. It was third-party apps using those AWS buckets in an unsecured manner. But I think this comes back to questions about the way Facebook has allowed its app partners to access user data. As ever, uh, thank you to our sound designer, Abby Bruce, and Matias Zappaletti for our theme music. We will see you back here in two weeks. Tune in. Tune in.